You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Scott, thanks and welcome to The Exchange, everybody. The September sell-off is picking up steam with stocks deep in the red today. After coming off a three-week losing streak already, this is now the Dow's biggest drop since June 11th. It's down 800 points as I speak. And now investors are on edge as uncertainty over future stimulus grows. And the future of the Supreme Court is up in air as the election fast approaches. Meanwhile, coronavirus cases in the U.K. do continue to grow, with the country reportedly considering another national lockdown. It's a broad-based and global sell-off. Let's get the very latest at this hour with our Bob Bassani. Bob? And a spike in cases in Europe, some trade tensions with China, some concerns about valuations and tech stocks, and a little bit of election jitters. It's a good reason why the market's down today. But if you look at some sectors that have held up very well, some of the reopening plays, really tough day. Industrials have had a great run in the last couple of months. This is one of the worst days I have seen in a long time for Honeywell, 3M, Caterpillar. They've just had really nice runs. And this is a pretty big uh, downdraft today. But the same with some of the reopening stocks that are out there. So, you know, Kohl's and the airlines have held up pretty well in the last couple of months. The Starbucks, even the REITs like Simon Property Group have held up well. Uh, Mohawk Industry, another one that's held up. And again, this is one of the worst days I've seen for most of these stocks and these subsectors uh, in quite a while. Again, though, the tech part of reopening, the tech part is holding up. Well, so you're getting the usual names here, your Apples, your ServiceNows, Qualcomm, Adobe. These are names we see all all the time associated with the reopening play. The tech side, they're generally up or, as you see in the case of Apple, it's on either side of positive or negative today. That's a very noticeable trend. The problem with the S&P right now, we've been on such an uptrend for three months. There's not a lot of technical support. And yes, technical support matters. Momentum matters here. The 200-day moving average right now, 3,104. And as you see there, we're a long way from that, more than 100 points away. But that's about it in terms of notable technical support. Guys, back to you. All right, Bob, thank you very much, Bob Bassani. Now, as the market sells off this month, it's also changing shape. Value is now outperforming growth. While both are down, as you can see here, growth is off by 10% since the start of the month. That's the deeper decline here. Value is only off about 4%. So again, a decline, but relatively speaking, a little bit of a better one. Taking a look at the sectors, this will tell you exactly what's going on. The market darling this year, tech, is now the worst performer, off about 11% on the month. Also, communication services, which includes Facebook and Alphabet, it's down about 10%. So there's your leadership to the downside. The best performers, relatively speaking, are materials, industrials, and utilities. In fact, materials is the only sector higher. Here it is in this white line here, barely higher on the month in what's been a pretty bleak month. Uh, managing to eke out a small gain. Industrials as well going towards the top of the leaderboard. And we haven't seen that so far this year. So here to break down this breakdown in the markets, we welcome Chris Davis, who's chairman of Davis Advisors, and Wasif Latif, who's head of investments at Victory Capital Solutions. It's great to have you guys both here. And Chris, first, what's your diagnosis of, of what What's going on here? Well, of course, you know, when we look at any one day, one week, one month period, you know, you think we would have learned in the last year, there's just tremendous unpredictability. You know, we're always trying to paste an explanation afterwards. What fundamentally has happened is that the market has been, was in a huge one-way move despite a lot of uncertainty, sort of climbing a wall of worry, uh, low interest rates. And I think now there's a little bit of taking stock, a little bit of a pause. Uh, and, you know, this is stocks are the only thing where lower prices really upsets people when, in fact, lower prices increase future returns. So 
I think that this is just a normal part of the volatility and fear and uncertainty that's out there, and people have to look beyond it. No, Chris, it's a great point. I mean, it reminds us of the old Ben Graham Mr. Market thing where he, you know, he comes to your house and offers you a price, you know, and a lower price if you want. The stock isn't necessarily a bad thing. So let me ask you, though, do some of the prices for big tech, which are down now, make them attractive to you, or, or would you still call them overvalued? Well, certainly they had a huge move. And, you know, I think the best of the best, the Amazons, the Googles and so on, uh, I think should be just a core part of long term portfolios. But certainly the one way move that they had created an opportunity to take some profits from this group and really look at those companies and industries that are durable. They're going to be here five years, 10 years, 20 years from now but had really, really sold off. And that gap creates a real opportunity to sort of buy what people have loved and, and, and add to what has really been despised. So I think now that trade, we're coming a little bit farther along in that. And so maybe now they've come down and corrected some. But, but uh, I think the real side to focus on is the buys because, boy, are there some great values in this market. And wait till people hear that you think Wells Fargo is one of them. I definitely want to come back to that. Uh, you like the fight. You said this is a great time to invest in banks, which is a headline in and of itself. So hold that thought for a moment. We'll see if I want to turn to you and kind of ask this question about uh, markets for the next couple of months with the Supreme Court up in the air and now adding so much more fuel to the fire when it comes to the election. Uh, what are you telling investors? Uh, hi, Kelly. Yeah, so the market sentiment was pretty weak to begin with uh, before we came to today, and we got a double whammy with uh, worries about uh, increasing cases all over again in Europe, uh, as well as the um, the situation around um, the Supreme Court choice. And I think all of that just means there's some jitters in the marketplace. I agree with Chris that there's a lot of opportunity there in the marketplace. Up until now, we've seen um, a lot of strength in the tech names that have grown and have increased in concentration in the marketplace. And we think that the activity that we've seen over the past month with the cyclicals, the less the less concentrated, the more beaten down names in the market coming back, like the industrials, that could be the harbinger of a big rotation that's taking place and coming out of it with the expectation that eventually we're going to come out of this slowdown that we're seeing. And when that occurs, you're going to see some of those beaten down cyclical names do a lot better, especially uh, if there is, and we think there ultimately will be, some kind of a stimulus package and eventually more and more of those that may be focusing on things like infrastructure. And that may explain why materials and industrials yeah. are performing well. And Wasif as well, I mean, you're talking about the cyclicals and, and the rotation here. So to you, this is not a moment of panic. This is not, you know, kind of the yeah, th this is a correction, not an implosion, right? Yeah, I think, it, you know, what we saw uh, implosion-wise was back in spring, and this is absolutely nothing like it. Uh, and I think if, if, if a worry about a reflaring of cases in Europe it results in a day like this, then this is pretty positive, I think, where yeah. it's an indication that some of the weaker hands may be being shaken out, maybe some of the leverage players may be being shaken out. But ultimately, I think the, st the stage is being set for a continued cyclical recovery. So for the past several years, we've been talking about tech being the strongest and the best place. Mm -hmm. I would venture that in the next several years, we'd be talking about the good old fashioned industrial materials and cyclicals being the best place to be. Yeah, the value investors are listening to you. They don't know whether to pound their heads on the table or, or take heart. Um, so Chris, let me turn to you before we go and ask, uh, since I teased it, about why you think right now is a great time 
to invest in banks. And of all the banks, Wells Fargo, you know, which can't even grow its assets right now, but also you have Capital One, a couple of foreign banks on here. But just quickly make the case for Wells Fargo, if you don't mind. Well, absolutely. The simplest case to make for banks is that they're the only sector in the economy that was explicitly prepared for the environment that we're in. The stress test, the lessons from the financial crisis had them double their capital ratios. In other words, cut risk in half, more conservative underwriting, huge liquidity. Uh, and so we come into this environment. They are prepared for this environment. They're stressing yet the stocks have been the worst performing group because everybody remembers the financial crisis and thinks that's what we're in for again despite the fact that now with their structures, the regulatory framework, they would have sailed through the financial crisis. That's what the stress test is. So the sector has been one of the worst performing sectors. The valuations are cheap, yet they are prepared for this. They're weathering it. These are been income statement events. Right. So we love the banks and within them, Wells Fargo. I'll just give you one number, Kelly. Just think about this. If Wells Fargo was to trade at book value, at its liquidating value, that stock price would be 70% higher than it is today. Wow. So people should be doing today what they'll be glad they did two, three, four years from now. But what people are doing today is what they wish they had done a year ago or, or two ten, years ago. Or That's 10 years ago. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, you can get Wells and Capital One at a, another 5% off today. Chris Davis and Wasif Latif, really enjoyed it, guys. Thank you so much. A difficult market day, down 800 points, but some good thoughts for investors there. Meantime, the battle to fill Ruth Bader Ginsburg's Supreme Court seat looms large as Washington already faces a number of challenges in the weeks ahead that investors are watching. From more COVID relief to now a possible government shutdown. Kayla Tausche is here with all the latest at this hour. Kayla. Hey, Kelly. House Democrats in the House of Representatives have just introduced a bill to fund the government until December 11th. Uh, and that effort, the clock was already ticking there, even without the high stakes fight now to replace the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and even without a comprehensive stimulus bill moving forward. And while Larry Kudlow at the White House this morning said that there's time to do everything, the calendar might suggest otherwise. There are just nine days now for both chambers to pass a bill to avoid a government shutdown and Senate Majority Leader leader Mitch McConnell just tweeted that he thinks it shamefully leaves out key relief for farmers. There were going to be just 12 working days in the Senate between now and the election, which is 43 days away, with several senators needing to head back to their home states to campaign. But McConnell is going to try to expedite the process to confirm a justice to the Supreme Court. That process historically has taken an average of 70 days, according to the Congressional Research Service. A comprehensive stimulus package is all but impossible. Now, there are some standards standalone efforts, Kelly, to resurrect the PPP program for small businesses and to prevent layoffs for the airline industry, which could start on October 1st. The question is whether this bitter partisanship can be overcome to move either of those forward and uh, how quickly they can do that. Kelly? All right, Kayla, stay right there, if you will. Joining us now for more on what comes next out of Washington, Stephanie Miller is Managing Director at Fiscal Note Markets. Stephanie, it's great to have you here. I want to make sure everybody knows what you think the gravity of this SCOTUS uh, implications is. You say you expect the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg to go down as the most impactful individual political event of the 2020 election cycle, which is saying something given this election cycle. And you say you don't think it's hyperbole to characterize the event as a contender for the most impactful political event of the first half of the 21st century. So, you know, explain all of the ramifications that we should possibly be watching for here. Yeah, so there's the near term, the midterm, and the long term. The near term is what it's done to blow up the stimulus talks, as, as Kayla was just talking about. The midterm is what it does for the election, which is obviously going to be a big deal. We can unpack that. 
And the long term is what happens if Democrats win. They are now threatening to do some really big things to structurally change the face of U.S. government as we know it. They're talking about adding more seats to the Supreme Court. They're talking about removing the filibuster in the Senate so that bills can pass with just a simple majority of 51 senators. These would be huge changes. They're talking about adding D.C. where I am uh, to be to a statehood, mm-hmm. uh, Puerto Rico to statehood. These would help Democrats get more votes, have more representation in Congress. So basically what Democrats are saying is Republicans, if you move forward with this, which Republicans are clearly doing, uh, to fill the seat as quickly as possible, Democrats are not going to hesitate to do some big things to strike back if they win. And it's fascinating, Stephanie, because that's the scenario if they win. If they don't, if the Republican wins or or there's not enough control to make those moves right away and you have this uh, Supreme Court that now has an added conservative, I see people who are painting all kinds of deregulatory scenarios that may come to pass across a host of industries in the meantime, right? Absolutely. Not to even mention that the next very, very, very important Supreme Court case could be deciding who's in the White House. Yep. And so right now, the Republicans have an advantage, the number of justices that they have nominated, so the number of conservative justices now definitely outweigh the number of liberal justices. So if it comes down to picking Trump versus Biden, Trump now has the edge. What McConnell needs to do and what Biden needs to do Uh, and what Trump needs to do, so these are all the majority leader, Mitch McConnell, and then the two presidential contestants, is really stoke enthusiasm to get people to turn out to vote. And one of the best ways to do that from the Republicans' perspective is to leave this almost but not completely figured out. Um, So I would not expect actually a final floor, Senate floor vote uh, ahead of the election. Mm. The best thing for Biden to do ahead of this is to tell people that this is so unfair, this is this huge crisis, and He's really resonating with Democratic voters. So I think all in anger and fear tend to motivate voters better than anything else. So I do think that Democrats have a bit of an edge right now than Republicans do. Interesting. Even though, Kayla, as I've read, you know, 19 other times this has happened, that if the same party controls the president and the Senate, that there have been Supreme Court nominations made and in all but one case approved, you know, 19 times, whether it was you know, going into the election or as a lame duck. And that's how Chief Justice John Marshall got his job was John Adams after he lost to Jefferson. Anyway, my my question, Kayla, is about kind of what Stephanie alluded to, which is she says she expects this to be almost but not completely figured out. What are you hearing about how quickly this nomination and confirmation uh, procedure will really move along? Well, they're going to try and do it as quickly as possible in the Senate, but in the House side, Speaker Nancy Pelosi has said that they're going to use every tool in their toolbox to try to stall this so that they can't do it before the election. But I think Stephanie made an interesting point about the composition of both Congress and the White House, because there had been an expectation that this election would be a wave in either direction, that if President Trump wins, there would be a halo effect on Congress, and that the Senate would retain its Republican majority, whereas if Biden wins, there could be a blue wave in the Senate, and some of those seats could flip there, too. But now, with all eyes on many of these senators uh, who made uh, some comments in 2016, 
16 and in some cases uh, have gone against that this year or are undecided at this moment. There are a lot of people looking at these senators and now there are some political strategists at UVA suggesting that support is eroding for the likes of Lindsey Graham in South Carolina. And so there could now be a scenario, Kelly, where the president who has been preparing for this, he beefed up his Supreme Court shortlist just a week ago, even if he wins the election, there could be some disdain for the senators and the way that they vote that there could be uh, a, a split in power mm. if there is a Democratic majority. That's something people are just starting to talk about. And that sort of standoff is not something that the markets usually like. It usually means legislative uh, stalemate for uh, yeah. several years. No, it's, it's explosive. I think you both are absolutely right. You know, uh, very, very long-term implications. Stephanie Miller, Kayla Tausche, thank you for uh, bringing us up to speed at this hour. Coming up, the latest on TikTok with dueling headlines and the U.S. and China battling for control. What does this deal actually resolve? And does it threaten American tech giants doing business abroad? We'll dive into that. Plus, when you hear about work from home winners, you typically think Zoom, Peloton and Slack. But there's one area you might not have heard about that still has room to run. We speak to the analysts making that case ahead. As we head to break, here's a look at the Dow 30 heat map. Amex, Honeywell, Dow and 3M are the biggest laggards. Walmart managing to eke out some small gains. Three are positive right now. We're back in two. Welcome back. You can still download TikTok in the U.S. after a last-minute deal for control of the app has appeared to shape up. But will the Chinese assent to it? A, a source close to the situation tells our Julia Borston they expect the Chinese government to approve the deal that the president signed off on. But Chinese state media had previously said their government would not approve the deal in its current form. Then there's the question of potential retaliation by China towards U.S. companies. Our Eunice Yun is live in Beijing for us with the very latest. Eunice? Thanks so much, Kelly. Well, we're only getting a sense now that Beijing could potentially reject this TikTok deal or that it's just trying to gain leverage in the negotiations. Uh, the editor of a very influential Communist Party paper, The Global Times, uh, tweeted out tonight that based on what I know, Beijing won't approve the current agreement because the agreement would endanger China's national security interests and dignity. Uh, he went on to uh, 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 pen a, a, a broader explanation of this in the Global Times, saying that, for example, the board would include a national security director approved by the U.S., or that Oracle could see the source code of TikTok and therefore see the source code of the Chinese equivalent, uh, Douyin. Now, this take is very different from what we were hearing all day today, not only in state media, but in social media as well, that uh, the belief really was that ByteDance, as well as Beijing, had gotten a good deal here. Uh, the uh, uh, Most people had assessed that uh, ByteDance uh, was able to uh, retain its ownership of 80%, and that at the end of the day, the algorithm and the technology was going to stay in Chinese hands. However, uh, now there's been much more confusion about uh, the ownership structure. And then, of course, we heard President Trump saying that he wants the ownership to be American and not Chinese. Now, just to make matters even more tense, uh, the Chinese government released over the weekend new rules for its unreliable entity list. Uh, this is the list that it put in place in retaliation to uh, Huawei, the Chinese telecoms giant, getting blacklisted by the U.S. No names were on that list, and that's really what everybody's watching for. But in terms of the targeted firms, the government said 
uh, those firms would be those that violate normal market practices or that discriminate against Chinese firms. So, uh, Kelly, when I talk to American business people here, they're saying that pretty much any American company could fit that uh, description. If they needed to. Absolutely. Eunice, thank you so much for that update. We greatly appreciate it. Eunice Yoon in Beijing tonight. And the key question remains here. Did the administration ultimately achieve what it wanted in the first place with TikTok, which was the protection of American consumer data with this deal or one similar to it that's shaping up? For more, I'm joined by Derek Scissors. He's Asia economist at the American Enterprise Institute. And Dipayan Ghosh is co-director of the Digital Platforms and Democracy Project at the Harvard Kennedy School. He's also a former privacy and public policy advisor at Facebook. Welcome to you both. And Derek, I'll start with you because you really hammered this point that the intent of the deal in the first place was to protect American data. Um, is, is that happening here? I think it's happening. Uh, as you guys just discussed, there's a lot of confusion. The Chinese side of the Global Times is basically a tabloid. The president seems to be characterizing a data that his own Treasury Department, a, a deal that his own Treasury Department didn't set up. But this started with a, an appropriate, correct U.S. investigation into how TikTok was behaving with regard to American consumer data. Uh, recommendations were made by the, the government body that's in charge of that, which is the Committee on Foreign Investment of the United States. Uh, those recommendations should have served to protect American consumer data. I believe they did, and I believe they're carrying through in this deal if we have a deal. The hard part is we get this talk about 25,000 jobs, which has nothing to do with consumer privacy, $5 billion education fund, which has nothing to do with it, the Chinese posturing on their side. But I think if the deal does go through, we will get protection for American consumers. Interesting. Dipayan, what are your thoughts about that and kind of the broader ramifications of what's happening here? You know, the same editor of The Times, Hu Shijin, yesterday tweeted that the U.S. treatment of TikTok could actually be a template for what happens to companies operating globally, that they will have to play by local rules and, and in this case, kind of bow to arbitrary forces. That seems like it could ultimately uh, do a lot of harm to a lot of big American companies. Yeah, you know, I think Derek is is absolutely right that while this this deal might, uh, if it goes through, uh, protect uh, the privacy uh, and therefore, let's say, the national security, should China choose to at some point uh, hypothetically use information against uh, against the United States, this this deal as structured should protect against that, uh, presumably, uh, but. Uh, you know, I think that the Chinese government and, and this official has has a has a real point here that, uh, you know, if if this deal goes through and it leaves all current uh, political parties, uh, entities uh, happy uh, on the American and the Chinese side, then it could very well serve as a template, not just for Chinese companies in the future, but maybe for American companies dealing in China or maybe for uh, for other companies around the world. And that will only uh, encourage this uh, broader uh, idea of a splinter net where we have uh, different regulatory circumstances yeah. uh, leading to different uh, economic circumstances in China versus the U.S. So, Derek, what is that ultimately going to mean for U.S. companies? And I also want to go back to your uh, sort of comfort level with this deal protecting American data because it, it doesn't even seem clear as to whether Oracle is going to vet the data, although maybe you think there would be... Uh, kind of assurances that come in another form, but I just don't see how it even helps protect the, the very thing that it was set out to protect. Well, it should do that. And if Oracle has custody of the data and, and is the, the 
entity in charge of, of controlling the servers. We've heard about all these people being hired. They should be responsible to an, uh, an American company or American seat on the board. Walmart having a seat on the board of TikTok Global. You know, if Walmart were to resign, if that director were to resign due to data practices, that would be a sign that uh, they weren't being followed and that, that ByteDance would face more sanctions. So there are, there are mechanisms in place to protect data if they aren't given away as part of the bargaining process. With regard to American companies, that bargaining process is the concern. The Chinese have been doing this to American companies in private for decades. They come in and they say, well, we have these laws we could apply to you. We could denounce you in state media or you could cooperate, for example, on tech transfer. Now the U.S. is making that legitimate to do it in public, that it isn't just data protection. It's also jobs and money. And that means data protection, as you are implying, becomes secondary. It also means that American firms can be shaken down for jobs and money. Yeah, and I imagine that all the major ones doing business there are watching this closely and trying to figure out their next steps. Gentlemen, thank you both for now. Derek Scissors, Depayan Ghosh, appreciate it. And still to come, some of the big momentum names of the past few months seem to have lost their mojo. We're going to break down the numbers. And speaking of momentum, shares of Nikola are tanking as the founder and chairman steps down. We have the latest and a look at what it could mean for General Motors investment. And we're seeing a bit of a bounce in some of the chip names. AMD, Lamb Research, Applied Materials, all higher now. AMD by 3%. We'll keep an eye on it right after this. Welcome back to The Exchange on a very tough day for the markets and a bit of a strange one that doesn't easily fit into any categorization. Here's what I mean. The Dow's down 734 points right now. With the lows, we are down 942. But the Dow is also the worst performer today. It's down 2.5%. The S&P is down 2%, down 65 to 32.54 right now. The Nasdaq is the outperformer, relatively speaking. It's only down 1%. And as I mentioned a moment ago, those semiconductor names like AMD are up by 3% today. The stay-at-home plays like Zoom Video also having a strong session. Here's what's going on with the sectors more broadly behind me. As you can see, all of them are in the red right now. Uh, the worst performer on the bottom left of your screen are materials and industrials, the two sectors that we've just called out for having the best September. Materials was the only sector positive for the month. We'll see if that's still the case. Meantime, the outperformers are back to your kind of COVID stay-at-home basket, right? It's technology only down a third of a percent. Utilities, different story, consumer staples, communication services as well. But again, it doesn't neatly fit any categorization here. Let's get some beat checks. For example, the restaurant stocks are selling off because of this wave of COVID uh, in the UK in particular, where they're talking about maybe another nas uh, national lockdown. So you have Dine Brands down 5%, Cheesecake Factory down 5%, Darden down 2.5%. Uh, the biggest loser right now is Cheesecake, then Dine Brands, Jones, Applebee's, and IHOP. How about the cruise stocks? Those are also sharply lower, with Norwegian leading the declines. Down, let's see, about 6.8%, but Carnival, Royal Caribbean also shedding more than 6%. Same goes for the airlines, also down 6% or more right now, with Delta, the biggest loser, uh, down more than 8%. So it definitely has a bit of a, kind of the old school, you know, COVID concern to it, even though a lot of what's going on today also comes down to political uncertainty in Washington. Let's get to Sue Herrera for our CNBC News update now. Sue? Thanks very much, Kelly. And good afternoon, everybody. Here's what's happening at this hour. We continue with some of the COVID news that Kelly uh, talked about. The CDC now saying it mistakenly published draft changes to its coronavirus transmission guidance on Friday. That guidance said COVID-19 was primarily spread through small aerosol droplets, which linger in the air longer than previously expected and travel well beyond six feet. 
The agency has since removed that update. It says it's working on new guidance that will be posted once that process is complete. The UK is raising that nation's virus alert level, which means COVID-19 is in general circulation and transmission is high. Britain's top medical advisors warning the public that more sacrifice will be needed to manage a second wave of that virus, which could cause a surge in October cases to nearly 50,000 a day. Meanwhile, British media reporting that pubs will soon be forced to close at 10 p.m. local time, while restaurants may be ordered to close down completely as part of new mitigation measures expected to be announced by Prime Minister Boris Johnson tomorrow. You are up to date, Kel. A lot going on with the COVID-19 in Europe today, so we're following it for you. Appreciate it, Sue. Thank you very much, our Sue Herrera. One area of the market that's getting especially hit hard today is health care. Aside from the overall sell-off, investors are concerned about the Affordable Care Act being overturned by a new potential Supreme Court. Universal Health Service among the worst performers down about 10 percent in the session, uh, the worst performer today, and it's down about 30% from its 52-week high. HCA healthcare down about 7%, also getting downgraded at J.P. Morgan today over political uncertainty. It's down about 18% from its 52-week high, and Centene also shedding about 10%. The second worst performer in the healthcare sector, it's down 25% uh, from its yearly high. Keep an eye on the whole basket. Coming up, investors are busy gaming out the market implications for the upcoming election, but could they actually be overplaying it? We'll look at the numbers. Plus, materials outperforming in the past few weeks, far outpacing tech, and two stocks have built big gains in the sector. Who and why? We have that ahead. Remember, you can always watch or listen to us on the go on the CNBC app. We're back in a couple. Welcome back to The Exchange. Dow's on track for its worst day in three months and starting its fourth straight week in the red right now. And we have team coverage monitoring these markets this afternoon. Dom Chu is watching materials. Mike Santoli taking a closer look at Wall Street in the 2020 election. Sima Modi tracking the IPOs that just hit the market last week. And Phil Lebeau has the latest on the drama over at Nikola. Let's start with the materials. Dom, taking a breather today. Taking a breather today. But as you pointed out earlier in the program here, Kelly, materials are important because right now, as things currently stand, They are the only sector in the S&P 500 that is actually positive over the course of the last month. As you can see here, these are three ETFs that track the material sector, the S&P 500 more broadly, and the energy sector. Energy down 12%, the worst performing sector over that one-month span. And again, materials, the only sector in the green, currently up about 1.5%. And that gap you can see between the best and worst performing, pretty wide here, almost at the widest point over the course of the past month. Stocks to focus on. Let's accentuate the positive. Check out these names. We're talking about, first of all, Westrock, International Paper, and Packaging Corp. of America, up 22, 15, and 12 percent, respectively. Why are those important? The one thing they all have in common, they are all in the business of paper, corrugated products, and packaging materials, a renewed focus on some of those stocks by certain investors. That's a sector to watch within the broader materials sector. And then, Probably the stock that you want to focus on the most, the one that's had a lot of the momentum to the upside here for the longer term, Sherwin-Williams. It's down 2% today, but that right there is a record high, and it's just about 5 to 6% off there right now. Sherwin-Williams, a play on the home improvement trend that's been happening with the COVID-19 pandemic. So, Kelly, an interesting move there. Sherwin-Williams, the third biggest stock in the S&P 500 material sector. Back over to you. Dom, here's what's a little odd about that, though, when you try to 
piece it together with the rest of the market. You have some of the stay-at-home names, the likes of Zoom and Peloton outperforming. But you have Sherwin-Williams, arguably also a stay-at-home name, down 2%. You know, it's just it's a little tough to tell what the overriding force to the downside is here. So there could be, because some of these names have been outperformers as of late, right? Some of these work stay-at-home trend names. You mentioned the cloud computing ones elsewhere in technology, kind of catching a little bit of a bid today. Semiconductors as well. Some of these old-fashioned value names, the ones that have been doing well, like Sherwin-Williams has been, might be one of those ones where people say, hey, you know what? If I have to raise money to go put it into stuff in the shopping list that I have in technology, maybe some of these names are the ones I want to take profits in to roll back into some of those technology and cloud computing names. So material certainly one to watch. I would also mention, Kelly, what's curious about energy and materials, both I mentioned those two sectors, they also happen to be, maybe not inconsequentially, the two smallest sectors in the S&P 500 together they make up less than 5% of the overall S&P. Less than 5%. Yep. That is shocking. Two and a third percent for materials. Wow. All right, Dom, thank you, you very much, sir. Dom Chu. Meantime, just about 43 days stand between now and the election. Mike Santoli here. How useful, Mike, are all of these predictions that people are making about, I mean, how, how can you even try to figure out anything that's going to happen this year, let alone the market's reaction to it. Yeah, it hardly seems really worth the, the bother. If you look at history in terms of trying to, ha- first of all, we understand why everybody is fixated on it. It's the next identifiable big potential catalyst on the calendar is Election Day. Uh, the issue is there's too many other factors at work to, to decide whether, in fact, it's going to be a good or bad thing for markets or what parts of the market. Uh, there's almost never, if ever, been a bull market that started or ended with an election. Uh, it tends to be a short term uh, dynamic in terms of creating some stress and some sentiment issues beforehand or getting people overexcited beforehand. But after the fact, you give some back. You talk about the, the Reagan uh, bull market of the 80s. It didn't start till two years after he was elected. The Clinton boom in the 90s, it was already kind of on the upswing when he got there. And it was the back half of the decade that gave you all the gains. And then if you want to look back to 2016, if you were right and thought that uh, President Trump was going to be elected, it accelerated an existing bull market. But you probably would have bought financials and energy, which have been the two worst performing major sectors hmm. since that point. So it's very difficult uh, to try to tease away uh, the, um, the, the impact of the election. The final point I would make is right now there's so much attention on the potential for volatility. There's a lot of hedging going on. The price of all these hedges has gone up. It makes you wonder if we're kind of front-loading some anxiety here. Right, right. And there'll be some tension release almost no matter what happens. Well, it's almost like, Mike, if you said, yeah, President Trump's going to be elected and electric vehicle stocks are going to go to the moon. I mean, <laughs> right. that, that's what's happened. Yep. I wonder how many people are thinking back to election night 2016. Was it Carl Icahn who who kind of claimed he he bought the lows and I mean it was kind he of was this, among this several, one day event right <laughs> yeah, true among several but how many people are looking to that and thinking you know maybe 2020 will offer me a similar opportunity well just the sense of um, the, that the obvious initial move on reflex uh, may may not be the right one right. that might be one lesson to be taken from that right right but also the fact that you know you the election like you said will cr- probably create some huge market moves. But just literally as we're talking about it, as opposed to for the next three to six or nine or 12 or whatever months. Absolutely. Michael, thank you. We'll see you again shortly. Let's turn now to the recent crop of IPOs, shall we? Because those day one darlings, you know, the likes of Snowflake, JFrog, Sumo and Amwell, they're pretty much all taking a leg lower right now. Seema, what does that tell you? Well, Kelly, the sell-off is seeming to give some investors a reason to take money off the table. Those red hot IPOs that you had mentioned, take a look at Snowflake. It priced at 120 a share, popped by more than 100%. 
100% in its initial trade to 319. It's now trading just around 221 a share. The stock also getting hit by a sell rating from Summit Inside. Analysts there contend that it's the most expensive name in all of technology, estimating that it trades at 76 times next year's sales. That's an even higher valuation than Zoom. Other recent IPOs, Sumo Logic, Lemonade, are down around 6 to 7%. The sell-off comes as a number of high-profile companies are set to go public in the coming weeks, including Palantir. Uh, e-commerce firm Hut Group, that's said to be London's biggest IPO in seven years, and China's Ant Financial. In fact, reports indicate that Alibaba founder Jack Ma is looking to raise $35 billion dollars $35 billion in its Ant Financial offering, which would top Saudi Aramco's $29 billion IPO last year. So this IPO boom certainly has taken a global theme uh, over the past couple of weeks, Kelly. Uh, and if anything, Seema, we saw last week the IPOs would do well even on days that the market was doing poorly. You know, like we said, the Dow's down three weeks in a row right now, but here comes Snowflake off to the races. I guess the big question is, you know, can, will all of these IPOs be assured of similar performance? And if so, we should probably take that as a somewhat cautionary sign, um, you, know, or, you know, or not. Or do, ultimately, do these market forces kind of force a little discipline? Yeah, the rebounding stock market from the March low certainly rejuvenated the IPO market. And we've really seen that take place over the past two weeks, specifically in the technology and software sector. And what was interesting is that even when we saw a lot of these big tech companies like Facebook uh, and Amazon roll over, uh, these IPOs, performed pretty well in comparison to the broader market. So does that continue? And we know so many of these companies tend to reference market conditions as one reason to mm-hmm. push out their data as to when they go public. So if this volatility persists, does that change the IPO calendar? I think that will be something to watch. I bet it'll change as soon as the first one goes off poorly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's I guess. Seema, thank you very much, Seema Modi. And finally, let's turn now to Nikola. The stock down 18% today on news that its founder, Trevor Milton, is voluntarily stepping down as executive chairman and a member of of its board. Nikola has fallen 34% since Hindenburg Research published a report accusing the company of an ocean of lies. Phil, what is the latest today? Uh, the latest is that those analysts who have been looking at uh, Nikola, who cover Nikola, are assessing this and saying, now wait, this is not a complete loss with this company. Nonetheless, it is a major setback given the fact that Trevor Milton, and he said this in a tweet, that he feels it's better for him to step aside for the company. In announcing his resignation, he said the focus should be on the company and its world-changing mission, not me. I intend to defend myself against allegations leveled against me by outside detractors. So who takes his spot? The new chairman of Nikola will be Steve Gursky. He was already on the board of directors. He will become the chairman of Nikola. As for Hindenburg Research, which put out the note 10 days ago saying, look, this is essentially a fraud, what's going on at Nikola. Their response to Trevor Milton's resignation, Nikola has almost no intellectual property, products, or revenue to fall back on. We think the company's key asset was its founder's ability to raise money through hype and outright lies. Yes, they believe there are outright lies at Nikola. What does all of this mean for General Motors? It is standing by its agreement with Nikola. Remember, it's taking an 11% stake in Nikola. It will also be building the Badger electric pickup truck. And it will be supplying hydrogen fuel cells for the hydrogen fuel cell semi that Nikola is developing currently in Europe. There you see shares of GM down almost two bucks today. Yeah, Kelly? Phil, it, you know, it's quite a day when reports of his arrest had to be denied. I mean, that, that's kind of the level that we're getting yeah. to with, with Trevor Milton. But what's interesting to me about this is where the analogies with Tesla stop. I mean, here was a company whose founder was a big part of the story. The guys just left the building. And I guess the question for the stock and for investors now is how important is his presence to that story? 
Well, he certainly was the oxygen that made the stock move and, and put a lot of the excitement behind it. Steve Gursky, who put together the deal with, that led to the Nikola IPO, he's going to be working now with uh, the CEO of the company. Um, and I think that people are going to look at this and they're going to say, okay, does he dial things back and does he focus mainly on the hydrogen fuel cell semi? Uh, where are their next steps? They need to put together at least a couple of benchmarks where they can say, look, we're going to deliver on some of the promises that are out there. Yeah, absolutely. Phil, thank you very much. Phil Lebeau, and he'll have a big day tomorrow. Battery day at Tesla. Uh, talk about momentum stocks. Coming up, uh, we're seeing this market sell off with the Dow down more than 700 points. But at the lows, we are down about 940. The Nasdaq is the outperformer today. The Dow is the one down nearly 3%. Take a look at this stock, though, which has more than doubled over the past six months. My next guest says it's just one of several work-from-home stocks that are flying under the radar and could still work. We'll have those names and the reason next. Welcome back. Tough day for stocks with the Dow, the S&P, and the NASDAQ all deep in the red. Check out some of the work-from-home winners, though. The likes of Zoom, Fastly, DocuSign, and Slack all bucking the market trend and rallying in today's session. And my next guest says there's another set of under-the-radar work-from-home trades that investors should be looking at here. For more, I'm joined by Jared Holtz. He's healthcare equity strategist at Jefferies. Jared, it's good to have you um, because, you know, listen, this, this does ring a little true. Tell me about why medical device makers could benefit from people realizing, hey, maybe they can go in for that procedure and not have to miss work. And, and it looks a little bit more attractive now. Definitely. Kelly, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I'm kind of looking at this from a standpoint of can patients now better recover now that we're working from home a lot more? And even if it's not ultimately that prolonged or consistent, I think we'll, we'll find a, a population that is able to work remotely far more often than we were pre-pandemic. So from a standpoint of recovering from some of these surgical procedures or other um, you know, medical procedures that we talk about a lot, I think we're much better positioned now. And I think the medical device companies are better positioned now from a standpoint that their patient population, their end user, can now hang out at home for a while longer. Yeah, it's fascinating. We all know how important that recovery is. I mean, it's kind of the, the difference between you springing back and really benefiting from the procedure versus not. So a lot of the names here come up. Many of them, like you said, have, have rallied nicely off the lows. And the interesting thing that you pointed out in the data is how quickly these procedures have, have seen demand snap back after COVID. You'd think people, if anything, would be putting off going back to the hospital and doing anything like this right now. Instead, that demand to you suggests this could have uh, some life to it. So how much more room do you think these stocks have to run? Yeah, absolutely. I think I've been very, very surprised at a couple things. Uh, the first is just the psychology of patients willing to go back into a provider, you know, during a pandemic. I think that's happened way more quickly than I, th than I thought and, and many others probably did. And then a lot, some of it comes down to provider and hospital readiness, how quickly could large hospital chains uh, switch the infrastructure and allow for you know, more typical day-to-day -day medical procedures rather than caring only for these COVID patients that were infiltrating the system uh, so significantly in the March and April timeframe. So I think some of the demand has obviously been deferred. You know, Those cases that were going to happen in call it January, February, March, the first quarter of the year, and those were pushed into the spring and summer but I think now that we're sort of getting much more used to working from home and employers and employees are, are feeling more comfortable with it, I think that's going to spur another leg of growth 
uh, that just has not been contemplated. Yes, yeah, so we're talking about in orthopedics the likes of Stryker and Zimmer, uh, intuitive surgical. We're talking about kind of Abbott uh, plays in cardiology. And then even you say, and this makes sense, cosmetic surgery, you know, look at AbbVie. Uh, but what about people who say, well, if I'm not going into the office as much, maybe that's not as important. Well, I mean, I can see it both ways, obviously, but I think just from a vanity perspective, we know the country is obsessed with looking good, and now that we're on these <laughs> Zoom calls all day, you know, I would think that some of the more minimally invasive or quick-to-recover cosmetic surgery procedures will start to really inflect at some point. And now, you know, no one even has to know, uh, you know, what you're up to from a, from a surgical standpoint. You could have something done that would typically be, you know, maybe more taboo, and now you're just stuck at home. So you're doing these things for yourself without the entire uh, workforce knowing uh, that you had something done. So I think some of these treatments might be flying somewhat under the radar, and I would continue to think this is sort of like an evolving landscape over the next few quarters. Yeah, it's fascinating. And on a down day like this, maybe a good entry point. Work from home, recover from home, uh, spruce up at home. Jared, thanks so much. We appreciate it. Thanks, Kelly. Jared Holtz of Jeffries today. Coming up, the casino stocks are selling off today with wind down more than 50% now from its 52-week high. We're going to take a closer look at this group and what it's telling us next. And don't forget that Delivering Alpha is back for its 10th year on September 30. Joining us are Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin, Stephen Schwartzman, Shamath Palihapitiya, and many, many more. Go to DeliveringAlpha.com to learn more and register. We'll see you after this. Welcome back and take a look at the casino stocks sharply lowered today as the reopening trade falters. Melco and Wynn are the biggest losers right now. And Contessa Brewer has more on this because, Contessa, this Wynn sell-off is not just today. No, it's been under pressure for a long time. And don't forget, it gets three-quarters of its revenue from Macau. And the Macau casinos are really feeling the heat. Win Macau had already warned about a month ago that ratcheting tensions with China and tit-for-tat retaliation jeopardize its business prospects. And business in Macau is still depressed, though neighboring Guangdong province is now issuing tourist visas for Macau. Jeffrey's out with a note today estimating that gross gaming revenue there is off 89% month to date. It's definitely not getting a V-shaped recovery. Right now, uh, Melco is under the most pressure. It's down 10% as we speak, then wind down 7.5%, Las Vegas Sands down 6%, and here you've got MGM Resorts down 4.5%. It relies less heavily on its Macau streams of revenue than the others do. Domestic gaming companies, though, are also feeling the drag. Investors are eyeing Washington. They're skeptical that any more government stimulus can get done before the election. And of course, there are renewed worries about how widespread and persistent the coronavirus infections are. Penn and Caesars saw astronomical rises, especially sports betting giant DraftKings as well. Now you can see DraftKings is off seven and a quarter, but still all three of those stocks are positive month to date in a big way. The only name in gaming that I follow that's in the green today is Scientific Games Corporation. It's up two and a quarter. It's an equipment maker and tech provider. It's just hanging on there, Kelly. New ownership, new governance, and it got an upgrade from Jeffrey's to buy with a $50 price target. Yeah, it, it's the only, it's notable because it's the only one. Uh, Contessa, thank you so much. Yeah. Contessa Brewer for us. Sure. That does it for the exchange today. Don't go anywhere. Power Lunch picks up coverage of this market sell-off in just a moment. I'll see you on the other side of this quick break with Tyler Matheson.
You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.